Hello, hello, hello. Hello and welcome to the very first podcast for From Altai to Euchre. My name is Michael Erdman. Perhaps you know me from my day job, which is as the curator of Turkish and Turkic collections at the British Library. But I'm also the editor, the only writer really, the production assistant, formatter, gopher, accountant of the blog From Altai to Euchre. I thought I'd make the most out of the voice functionality on WordPress's uh, blog site in order to create some podcasts to add a bit of a mix to the written pieces that you'll find on the on the blog. The idea here is to still cover the same topics, so language, identity, publishing culture, with a particular focus on Eurasia and, and sort of Turkic and Kurdish communities, but also sort of a broader a broader range of topics and places. And do that in a bit more of a conversational way, a bit more of an informal way, so that it can be a bit of a variation on some of the more academically oriented or sort of research-heavy pieces that I have in terms of the written work. I'm also hoping that if I get the hang of, of hearing myself say the same thing over and over and over again, and also editing myself saying the same thing over and over again, that I'll get comfortable enough to have collaborations with other individuals to have them come on in order to have a conversation about different things, for them to share their research, and for them to share their ideas about a whole host of different topics and issues. Today, I'm going to talk about language learning. I'm going to talk about all of the different things that you can do to learn a language and why I might need to learn languages, why it might be a part of my job. I'm going to do it by referencing a few different pieces that I've read. And don't worry, you don't have to have pen and paper out or have Microsoft Word open to scribble down or to frantically get the references. I'll make sure that in something after this blog post or together with it, that I can give you the links to the pieces that I cite. Um, it's really just meant to be something to say how I get my ideas and then to provide you with a way to access those and read them on your own and see how right or wrong I might have been in interpreting them or if there's something that they give rise in your mind uh, to so that they uh, they can help perhaps inspire you as well to think about some of these topics. So the first piece I'm, I'm going to talk about or I'm going to reference rather is a piece called How to Learn a Language and Stick at It by John Gallagher which appeared in Psyche on the 10th of March 2021. Uh, Psyche is kind of like a, it's an online magazine where you can find articles that span nerdish interests, geeky culture, academic culture, but also sort of general interest stuff as well. The article really stuck in my mind because it's such a great, really comprehensive view to some of the easiest ways of learning, especially languages that are very commonly taught. Gallagher goes through all of the different apps. He goes through so many different online learning options and different things that you can use to really fit learning a language into your into your daily life. But one of the things that I really, really liked that Gallagher talks about is this idea of having a target for your language learning. We always think that the end goal should be fluency. But actually, if you learn a lot of languages, you realize that's a bit of BS. No one actually can attain fluency just by learning a language without really living it. Because it's just hard to have something even close to fluency in all different aspects of your life if you're not living in that language, I think. I mean, that's just my perspective. That's just sort of what I've I've experienced as someone who, who has learned a lot of languages but really only lived in a few of them. I think that Gallagher's, Gallagher's point here is really key because it's if we want to really learn a language well for a specific purpose, then you have to put that purpose forefront. Do you really need to know how to, um, I don't know, 
conjugate verbs in in the uh, subjunctive past in order to understand salsa lyrics? Do you really need to know all of the, the different vocabulary that comes with bookbinding or, I don't know, parliamentary procedure? Probably not. And that's fine. I guess what brings the question forward to me is, well, what happens when you do actually need that language skill? What happens when you do actually need to learn a language to the point where you can maybe not be fluent and maybe not be really conversant in all of these different topics, but that you can at least understand them. And that's really something that taps into the job that I do and the job that so many different subject area librarians or specialty librarians do. My job at the British Library is acquiring, cataloging, curating collections of books in Turkic languages and in Kurdish languages. And what that means is that I have to buy all of these different things that reflect publishing culture in, in I think, 30 different languages or dialects, probably from about 10 different countries. And that can be anything from feminism to poetry. It can be from cookery to parliamentary procedure to medical care to public health to social housing, all of these different topics, which, to be frank, at times I don't even have the, the vocabulary in English to describe. Of course, we're not talking necessarily about being able to fully translate the books. We're not being ta- we're not talking really about being able to like give a review even of the book. But it is a question of being able to understand what the content is to a certain point. Given that that's pretty hard. I mean, I I don't know if certain anglophone books I'd be able to give a, a brief synopsis and select categories of subjects for without fully reading the book and then having someone explain it to me. How do I do that in Turkish or for Azeri or Kazakh or Tatar or Yakut? And what's even worse with that is how do I then gain the skills when, say, there aren't all of this, the, the materials that you might expect to learn Swedish or, I don't know, librarian sciences in Russian for Azeri or for Tatar or for Chuvash or for um, Krumanja. So all of these languages that don't have the same sort of presence that, say, Swedish does in, uh, in general Anglophone language learning materials and, and the marketplace, that then suddenly I've got to find some way to learn how to use these and really make them into a meaningful tool for me to do my job. So now you're probably like, whoa there, hold on. You don't actually have to create this massive perfect catalog. All you have to do is catalog the items in a way that allows for people to find them and then leave it up to the researcher to decide whether they want to use them, how they might be able to use them, and how this item might fit in with general ideas of whatever it is that you think the book is about. To some degree, I, I'm of the same opinion. I think it's not really my role or my responsibility to tell people how they should view the books or how they might use them. On the other hand, I think we also have a responsibility as curators, as catalogers, to provide some sense of context around the works and to provide them with some sort of support so that if someone's coming up and trying to look for an item in a catalog, that they get a sense of how this item might have been viewed to some degree within the context in which it was created. Culturally, where does this item fit and how was it meant to be seen rather than just have someone within an Anglo-American library or within an Anglo-American context understood the book to be seen? 
It's an idea, really, that comes from another paper, the second one that I want to talk about today, which is a paper from 2021, and it's um, something from the University of Hawaii. It's by Tonya Sutherland and Alyssa Purcell. It's called A Weapon and a Tool, Decolonizing Descriptions and Embracing Redescription as Liberatory Archival Practices. I'm sweating slightly here because I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't know if I said liberatory properly, but frankly, it's my podcast, and if I mis- mispronounce something, that's, uh, that's my prerogative. I think it's a it's a great paper, um, mispronunciations aside. Uh, it's a great paper to look at some of these questions, and it's something that I think deserves going into uh, a bit deeper, although it might not necessarily seem on on the surface, really, on the surface of the title, to fit in with the theme of today's podcast. So Purcell and Sutherland, or Sutherland and Purcell, they... They look at two different groups of archives. One one is a discrete archive. So it's an archive known as M93, which is an archive relating to Queen Liliuokalani, who is the final monarch, deposed monarch of Hawaii, who was deposed by rebels from the Republic of Hawaii before the annexation of Hawaii by the United States. And the other one is a group of archives, really, where it's really looking at the digitization of collections of archives relating to slavery era materials, and particularly materials relating to the enslavement of peoples of African origin, of West Africans, and their transport to the Americas. I'm not going to look particularly at the second group of archives because there the Sutherland and Purcell paper looks a lot more at ideas of digitization and duty of care, involvement of the community, and not necessarily language. Whereas in the M93 archive, I think that there's a lot more food for thought in terms of the topic that I'm, I've brought up, the topic that I'm addressing really in this, in this podcast. Particularly, there's this idea about the ways in which the language in, that the archive is described with, that that really affects the way that people will interact with the archive and, and how the institution holding the archive can reflect the importance of the archive by using a particular language or particular linguistic setup, really, a context, in order to change how that archive is used and change how that archive is seen. What's really the crux of it is that Sutherland and Purcell talk about the idea of the creation of a finding aid entirely in Olilo, Hawaii. This is a finding aid that is parallel, but not the same as, an English language archival finding aid. So it's an archival finding aid that is created in Olilo, Hawaii, for the purpose of really encapsulating all of the different epistemologies, ontologies, everything really that like we kind of take for granted as being encapsulated within language and within our culture uh, that is particular to the indigenous people of Hawaii. So there's this idea that that you know the finding aid, that the way that the language is used in order to really describe these materials, which seems almost innocuous given how we're sort of told about archives and, and told about libraries, how that can so be so important for the ways in which the collections can be brought to use, really, the ways in which the collections can be contextualized within the community where they were created, and how it can be so important to have that that is in a way that's so specific to one particular community, one particular language, one particular historic significant point that that can't necessarily be recreated in a quasi or so-called universalist way with with English. I think that there are some parallels there with what 
um, what I see in my own work. And obviously, yeah, obviously I'm not going to be able to do some of that. So I'm I'm kind of looking at it and I think, oh yeah, there, there are some aspects of this paper that I find really interesting that I think are so, so crucial for the way that we think about creating collections and really curating collections that deal with materials in other languages other than English, other than the dominant language, really, of the library or the archive or wherever, it, whatever it is, wherever you're working. Um, but that there are other things, too, that that don't necessarily fit for dealing with, with some of the stuff that I'm dealing with, right? Because there are quite a lot of differences between the situation of the M93 archive, which is related to an indigenous community that's being held and described by the colonizing nation, by the colonizing group. There's a difference with what I deal with because what I'm looking at is the materials that we hold by and large are not succinctly and compactly relating to a particular community. So we're not looking at like a whole archive the way M93 is that relates to an individual or that relates to a particular practice or a particular community. We have sort of quite a diverse range of materials that are scattered from the the history of cultural production from Turkic and, and Kurdish peoples. This is a curated collection. This is a collection really of materials by and large printed books produced after 1945, where a lot of the material that we're trying to create this collection from, it's uh, it's material that was purchased on the open market, that was sold by people from the countries, from the communities in which it was produced, and that doesn't really relate to this sort of colonizer or indigenous dynamic. The other aspect, of course, is that M93 is still resident, is still found in Hawaii, whereas the materials that I'm collecting, they're being held at a library in the United Kingdom which is not the country that was in necessarily a strict colonial relationship relating to the communities where these materials were produced. The idea is also not that the, that these materials are the sole representative of this sort of information that relates to the community. There's a lot in there in the Sutherland and Purcell paper that gives food for thought, but also a lot that really makes you stand back and say, okay, well, well how much can I actually use? And how much do I need to know? Because in the Sutherland and Purcell paper, one of the things that's really interesting is this idea of creating an Olelo Hawaii finding guide to the archive, which is different. It's not a translation, but it's a, an entirely different document constructed entirely in Olelo Hawaii for the use of speakers of Olelo Hawaii. And that raises the question for me as to whether someone could do this for our collections. I don't think that I'd necessarily be able to do it because for whatever language I would I would be trying to do it, I don't think I would have the necessary linguistic skills or ever be able to attain them. But there is another aspect of the Sutherland and Purcell paper that does apply to our collections, I think, and that is the English language uh, finding guide. The English language finding guide raises a few questions for me. I want to know who created the guide, who the guide was created for, and whether the guide, if it was created entirely in English, or if it was just a translation, if it can encapsulate some of those ideas about the language really holding a cultural value, holding cultural values and cultural ideologies that can then be carried over when the, when the finding guide is really meant for someone who is an Anglophone. And this is where I think we really come back to the original topic of the of the podcast. I know we've kind of gotten a bit far from it, but 
when, for example, I've been learning Kurdish, when I've been learning Kermanji, is there a question of me being able to learn enough Kermanji to create some sort of uh, finding guide or collection catalog that is either in Kermanji that really reflects all of these ideas? I don't think so. Or would it be possible for me to collect or rather to curate and to create one in English that then reflects the Kermanji, the Sorani, the Zazaki elements within these items that a native speaker would want to see carried over. It's something that's quite hard and it's really not necessarily possible for me to do at this moment, I think, in Kermanji, in Kurdish languages, in any of the Turkic languages, no matter how much I might try to beef up my skills in terms of the linguistic terminology to really do this. Maybe it's a bit of a frustrating thing because I, I'm i not really, I'm, I'm bringing up something and I'm saying, oh, it's an issue. Oh, it's something that's really interesting. Oh, it's something that I, I've really thought about because these two papers have maybe questioned certain aspects of what I do. And then I'm basically saying, oh, well, I, I don't really have a solution for you. And But I mean, that's kind of what is the spice of life, right? Those are the things that make our jobs interesting. And those are the things that I think should start the conversation as to how we build collections and how we account for those collections and how we make those collections available to different communities, especially when we're not operating in in the midst of that community. When there's a sense that I'm building Kurdish within a broader structure of the Asian and African Studies section, which is in an even broader structure of the British Library's wholesale cataloging. So is it a bit much for me to ask that I can use different subjects that don't relate to the Library of Congress? How much can I depart before it's just a separate library? And also before people who come to the catalog and they understand how to use the catalog start to get confused, even those people who are who are Kermanji speakers, who are Kurdish speakers, or who are, again, Tatar speakers, Kazakh speakers, Turkish speakers, who might have the vocabulary but don't understand how we're building our catalog. So that's sort of the conclusion that I've come to in my own mind. Uh, again, sorry, no, uh, no easy solution, but hopefully a lot of questions to help you stop and think about the ideas of language learning and the usage of, of other languages in our work in libraries and in archives and in museums, maybe. Maybe museums, I don't know. I haven't worked in a museum. And hopefully this will actually spark a bit of feedback and a bit of commentary and a bit of discussion in terms of what what other people do, what other sections um, in different libraries are doing, people who work with different language material and different types of collections. Because I think we can really learn from one another in terms of how we use languages and how we use language as a sort of general concept in order to make these archives, make these products available and and usable to researchers and to, to just people who want to read them, who want to use them all over the world. Okay, so now we're almost at the end. Not quite the end, but almost. Because I want to have one last segment at the end of each podcast where I talk about, briefly talk about, a book or a magazine or a journal article that I've read that I thought was interesting and that I want to share with with you, the listeners. Today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about... um, a bit of an older piece. It's from 2003, and it's a piece entitled Who Owns the Means of Cultural Production? The Soviet Yiddish Publishing Industry of the 1920s. It was written by Dr. David Schneer, and it appeared in Book History, Volume 6. Don't worry, I'll give all of the the bibliographic details in a corollary post to this. I think that this piece is really interesting because it looks at something that we don't have a lot of information about, and that is particularly minority language publishing at the start of the Soviet Union in a way that looks at it outside of necessarily just propagandistic uh, exploits. 
it's really quite an interesting piece, not just in terms of its own sort of uh, absolute merits, but also in terms of some of the um, relational work or some of the similar work that I do in terms of Turkic publishing at the start of the Soviet Union, because it gives us an idea of all of the different actors who were involved all of the different pressures and ideas, all of the different influences that came from both inside and outside of the Soviet Union, and how those merged together during the new economic program to allow for the creation of this quasi-state Yiddish publishing industry. Schneer is such an incredible writer when he provides so many details, so much information, and so much depth to the history of the Yiddish publishing industry that I think it's something that even if there aren't necessarily clear parallels between Yiddish and Turkic publishing, for example, there's still a sense of what we can do to really understand a bit more about publishing history at the start of the Soviet Union, how minority groups, how non-dominant groups within each of the different republics were able to instrumentalized publishing and printing, and how Russian and non-Russian actors influenced one another in the creation of these industries before they were really captured and entirely bureaucratized by the Stalinist state. It's such an interesting paper, and I'd really encourage anyone who's interested in the origins of minority publishing, uh, Soviet minority publishing, to take a look at it, to really understand it, and have a a look through a lot of the other uh, references that Schneer gives, because I think it could really spur quite a, a lot of different interesting topics and different interesting comparisons between Yiddish publishing in terms of a Western Soviet minority and Turkic publishing in terms of an Eastern Soviet minority um, and, and how that related to publishing outside of the Soviet Union as well. Okay, okay, so we're at the very end of the podcast. Thank you for listening all the way through, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to the podcast, that it provided you with some food for thought and inspired a few new ideas around language learning, languages, and curation of archives and libraries. If you came to the podcast through Twitter or through some means other than my blog site, I'd ask you to take a moment to visit from altaitoyuher.home.blog to have a look through some of the blog posts and to sign up as well so that you're notified when there are new blog posts or new podcasts posted on it. I really enjoyed our chat today, and I'm looking forward to another conversation when I finally get around to figuring out podcast two and manage to post it as well. Until then, happy curating, and bye for now.